As we enter into a new year, we are reminded that it is only by the grace of God that we are still afforded the freedom to worship Him without the threat of imprisonment or even death. And since worship is commanded by God and toward God, He reserves the right to dictate exactly how we are to worship Him. This sermon examines the particulars of true worship according to the dictates of God's holy word, the Holy Scriptures. Our old covenant reading coming from Genesis in chapter 28. Genesis and chapter 28, beginning in verse 10, beginning in verse 10 through verse 17. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, God recounts unto us Jacob's dream at Bethel. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took up the stones of that place and put them for his pillow and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Paul, writing to Timothy, the pastor at the church at Ephesus, 1 Timothy in chapter 3, two verses only, 14 and 15. By the same Spirit, the apostle writes, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, errant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of our God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day, especially in light of how we are to worship the Lord our God. Now from the very first moment that man was created upon the earth, he was called to worship his creator God. And this concept of worship is engrafted, it's ingrained into each person by virtue of their being created in God's image and having a conscience that bears witness of that creator. On the first day of each week, millions and millions of professing Christians attend church services throughout the world. Some truly worship. Others simply show up because of either conscience, tradition, duty, habit, guilt, or maybe out of fear that God would be displeased and things won't go well for them. So some worship and others just show up. The mindset that simply showing up to a church service, sitting in the pew, singing the hymns, and listening to a sermon is actually worship has sent more people to hell than any of us could ever imagine. Thinking that simply showing up, 
singing the hymns, listening to a sermon, nodding your head, saying, good job, pastor. That idea, that mindset has probably sent more people to hell than anything else. Showing up, therefore, in and of itself is not worship. Singing the hymns, not worship. Listening to a sermon, not worship. Not in your head, in acceptance of what's being said, not worship. So what is it? What does it mean to worship God? What is worship? Why do we do it? Is it actually required of us to worship God in corporate? Is it really required of us to come to church? Can't we just stay home? Can't we just stay home and worship? You know, of course, you know, worship is me and God. It's just me and my Bible. I can stay home and worship God. That's, that's, that's fine. So what does it mean? And is it actually required as a corporate meeting institution each week? Well, let's consider the nature, structure, and function of biblical worship. What's worship? What is its nature? Well, worship is a divinely commanded duty which is part of the law of God. Moses explains this to Israel after their liberation from Egypt. Notice what he says in Exodus 20, verse 8 and following. Remember the Sabbath day. Notice he begins with, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He sanctified it. He made it holy. He said, this day is holy unto the Lord. Now two things stand out here. First, we are to remember the Sabbath day so as to keep it sacred. In other words, according to Leviticus 19.30, God says, ye shall keep, notice, ye shall, this is not, in other words, optional, but ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. So we are to remember the Sabbath day so as to keep it sacred, reverential. Holy means to set something apart for a religious purpose. The day of worship, therefore, is to be set apart from all the other days of the week. But notice again, the commandment begins with the assumption, God is making a holy assumption because God knows the mind of man, even the mind of his saints. That commandment begins with the assumption that God's people might sometimes be forgetful as to their duty and the severity as well as the blessedness in the worship of God in a corporate fashion. And so God begins by admonishing us to remember that day. Once we remember that day, we are to approach it as a holy day, a reverential day, a sanctified day, a special day whereby we are to worship God. We are to sanctify the Lord and His day, the day of worship in our hearts. True worship, however, has a number of components. The main component of worship, true worship, is the preaching of the Word of God and, and this is where the rubber meets the road, and the congregation's heartfelt response to that Word preached. Because when the Word of God is preached, it is the 
minister unpacking the revelation of God so that you understand what God requires of you, how you are to sanctify His holy name, and how you are to be blessed by it. So there's a blessing that is attached to true worship. For Israel, the Sabbath day was to be celebrated on the seventh day, which pointed forward to the Sabbath rest that the redeemed enjoy in Christ, who is himself our Sabbath rest. This is why it is said that we rest in Christ. But once the anticipation of Christ's rest was realized at his coming and his resurrection victory, the day of rest becomes the Lord's day. And there's a transition. The day is then changed from the seventh day to the eighth day, or commonly referred to as the first day of the week, according to Matthew chapter 28. And now it is in harmony with God when he declared, let there be light, and he said that on the first day. Or, if you prefer, the eighth day. It was on resurrection morning that the Old Testament seventh-day Sabbath was transitioned into a New Testament first-day Sabbath, signifying that the rest was accomplished by the atonement and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the Greek translation of Matthew 28 is so important. Verse 1 is so important because verse 1 of Matthew 28 actually says this, In the end of the Sabbaths, plural, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the Sabbaths, came Mary Magdalene. In other words, there was an Old Testament series of Sabbaths, but then when Christ resurrects on the first day, there's a transition for the New Testament series of Sabbaths, which is on the first day. And what Matthew is saying is that when Christ rose from the dead, it was the end of the Old Testament Sabbaths, initiating the beginning of the New Testament Sabbaths. So there's a transition from the seventh day to the first day. It's as if he was saying, in light of the backwardness of the Old Testament ceremonial Sabbaths, which was but a shadowy anticipation of the New Testament Sabbaths, which came with substance because it showed forth the Christ, which is the actual substance, a light now is about to shine. The New Testament Lord's Day was to be distinct from all other days and separated from all secular work-related activities that were usually done during the six-day work week. Six days thou shalt work. Notice it doesn't say five. Six. We work six days and then we rest on the first day of the week. The New Testament Lord's Day had certain aspects of seventh-day Sabbaths with some variation. The motivation, however, was the same. Worship was the same. The motivation behind both the Old Testament and the New Testament worship days was to be one of sobriety and religious contemplation on the things of God in a consecrated setting on a specific day. It was a time where the people of God would be instructed in the law, called to examination, directed as to live holy lives, regulate their families under the catechizing of the Word of God so that the next generation would be profitable and fruitful and then they would find joy and hope in the messianic blessings and the benefits of the love of God. And that's what we should be gleaning from the worship of the Lord. We should be leaving here educated, encouraged, chastised, reproved, but blessed. But it was also to be a day of great celebration. It was to be a day of great celebration because the victory had been won. 
Christ had taken the victory and made it real. The victory that was wrought by the power of the Spirit as a result of the work of Christ, that is our celebration. So not only is it a time of of worship before God, of of blessing before God, of finding joy and hope to be uh, catechized, to be instructed in the law, to be reproved and chastised and, and rebuked, but it's a day of great celebration. And so the day of worship, we have a sort of a dichotomy of responses. On the one hand, we are to enter into the Lord's house with reverential fear and sobriety, honoring the Lord. And on the other hand, we are to enter into the Lord's house with with joy and and praises for what he has done. So there's sort of a, a, a dichotomy of responses. The psalmist gives us some idea of how we are to enter into the Lord's house. Notice Psalm 100 and verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Notice twice, be thankful, bless his name, enter into thanksgiving, praise him. R.J. Rushton, he adds this, he says, God classifies the Sabbath as a feast day. The idea of a joyless Sabbath is a contradiction. The old-fashioned Sunday dinner and family gathering, inclusive of kinfolk, is in terms of Leviticus 23, 1, 2, and 3, the Sabbath as the feast day. A celebration of rest, a weekly feast day, is God's mandate, end quote. It should not be a drudgery. It should be a delight. And this is why the Old Testament scriptures identify the first day of the week and the eighth day of the week, which is actually the same day, Sunday, count eight days, you got Sunday. Both of those days, the first and the eighth, were both days slotted for the day of feasting and celebration. And this was an anticipation of the resurrection of the Lord, the resurrection Lord's Day, that would become a reality once the day would transition from the Old Testament Sabbath to the New Testament Sabbath, when Christ rose from the dead. Notice Leviticus 23.39. Also, in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, notice here's the gathering, the fruit of the land. Remember the gathering is synonymous with how Christ comes to gather his people together, gather the, the fruit of the harvest together. Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. Notice this. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. This is the anticipation of the transition. So for all of those seven-day Adventists, they don't know what to do with this. Know when this was going to take place, when the fruit of the land was gathered at the harvest. And the harvest was always the time of Pentecost. This is a clear anticipation of the Feast of Pentecost, when the gathering of all of God's people would begin in earnest as an answer to Jesus' prayer, to send laborers into the field of the world because the harvest was right. Now the number eight always refers to the celebration of deliverance through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we find the number eight throughout the scriptures. David, the eighth son. Noah, eight in the ark. Circumcision, the eighth day. We also see this clearly in the book of Leviticus, chapter 9, chapter 23, number 6, number 7, number 29. 
All of this, speaking of this kind of a, a deliverance celebration, the idea of celebration is also made clear in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 8 and following. Also at the same time, Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great congregation, from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt, and in the eighth day, notice, that's the first day of the week, they made a solemn assembly. For they kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. So you have day one, the Sunday, day eight, the Sunday. After this eighth day of celebration, this eighth day celebration, in the same context, God promises this in verse 14 of Second Chronicles 7. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. This is connecting to that first day, eighth day, Sabbath victory celebration. Now, while all of life, of course, is to be holy unto the Lord, and it shall be, of course, a life of worship, full of worship. We should be worshiping the Lord on a daily basis. That does not mean that there is not to be any distinction made as to the corporate assembly of God on a specific day. The Reverend Frank Smith explains it this way. The Reformers taught that all of life is dedicated to the service of God and that all believers are priests before him. But, but, this is not to say that there are no distinctions to be made. And the distinction between general service and specific worship can be illustrated by the fact of God's special presence within the corporate assembly. The Lord Jesus Christ made this clear in Matthew chapter 18 when he stated that where two or three are gathered together in his name, he was present in their midst. And he was specifically referring to the corporate worship of the saints on the Lord's day and not some Bible group. He was especially concerned with church Worship. The Reverend Smith again explains it this way. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ spoke of his being especially present among two or three gathered together in his name. His occasion for speaking that, however, is in the context of ecclesiastical discipline and shows its serious nature. And the only place that ecclesiastical discipline is brought forth is in the congregation, in the corporate setting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that Jesus is present in his power when the church gathers together as a visible body to pronounce judgment. And this means that when we gather together on the Lord's Day, we enter, we enter into the courtroom of the king who is both lawgiver and judge. Think about that. Just think about this. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that Jesus is present in his power when the church gathers as a visible body to pronounce judgment. So think about that. The church is actually the courtroom of God. So how would we enter into a courtroom situation that was manned by a human judge? Let's think about it another way. How would you enter into the courtroom if you were the one being admonished by the judge? You know, you ever go to a courtroom? I think all children should go to a courtroom to see a court. To sit there in the pews in the courthouse and see what reverence there is for a human judge. Well, that's exactly what you're doing when you enter into the house of God on the Lord's Day. You're entering into the courtroom of God. 
We are entering the worship assembly to hear God's word preached. And by the preaching of the word, we are charged. Do this, don't do that. Rejoice, have faith, admonishing, blessing. This is the courtroom of God. Author Stephen J. Lawson, in his book, which everyone should read, The Expository Genius of John Calvin, says this. And remember, when the word is preached, the judge is speaking. When the word is preached, the judge of all the earth is speaking. Lawson says this, To step into the pulpit is to enter onto holy ground. To stand behind an open Bible demands no trifling with sacred things. To be a spokesman for God requires utmost concern and care in handling and proclaiming the word. Rightly does scripture warn, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But sad to say that we live in a generation that has compromised this sacred calling to preach. Exposition is being replaced with entertainment, preaching with performances, doctrine with drama, and theology with theater. Desperately does the modern church need to recover its way to a pulpit that is Bible-based, Christ-centered, and life-changing. God has always been pleased to honor His Word, especially His Word preached. End quote. And so the worship of God centers around the preaching of His Holy Word while in the corporate presence of God. Reformed worship is primarily an auditory experience. It's not, it's, it's, it's not responsive readings. It's not ritualistic. It's not ceremonial. It's auditory. Centered on the proclamation and the hearing of the Word of God and the singing of the Psalms. That's why we sing the Psalms. So again, you're reiterating the Word of God. And this is what it was like in Calvin's Geneva. They would sing the Psalms. They would sing a cappella. They would have the word expounded to them. It was opened up, it was unpacked, so that even a child could understand that there is a right and a wrong. There's things to do which are good. There are things that you do which are evil. And the only way to heaven is Jesus Christ, not your own works, but Christ himself. And this is what it was like in the days of the Reformers' Passion. Because there was not only a passion of the preaching of the Word of God, but there was a passion of the hearing of the Word of God. People came to hear the Word of God. To be attentive to the Word of God. To move mountains to hear the Word of God. To travel great distances to hear the Word of God. Consider Jacob's experience in the presence of God in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. Now, when Jacob awakens, after he has this incredible dream, he recognizes, he finally realizes after the dream that he is in the presence of God. And this is what we need to realize when entering into the Lord's house. And this is also what our children need to understand as well. Whenever we enter into the Lord's house, we are entering into the presence of God. The Lord's house is not their house. And therefore, the rules are different. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Jacob knew that he had been in God's holy presence. In Calvin's Geneva, it was customary to have mothers with their children sit in the front row 
right before the pulpit where Calvin was at the pulpit. Little children with their mothers, their fathers behind them, emphasizing that they were in the presence of God. And Calvin was speaking the word of God as God to the congregation so that these children would understand the severity of worship before God. And describing the interior of Calvin's church at St. Pierre, Scott Mantish explains it this way. He says, St. Pierre's sanctuary is altogether like the interior of a college or a school, full of benches with a pulpit in the middle for the preacher. And in front of the pulpit there are benches for women and small children, and around them, raised up, the men are seated without any distinction or personal rank. The stained glass windows are just about all knocked out, and the plastered dust is up to the ankles. As soon as the town's people enter into the church, each person choosing his own place to sit, as in a school, they then wait for the preacher to come to the pulpit. And immediately, when the preacher appears, he begins praying with uncovered head, and his hands joined. His prayers was entirely in French, created out of his own imagination, which was concluded with the Lord's Prayer, but not the Ave Maria. Then all the people responded quietly, Amen. Everyone sings together while seated. Men, women, girls, and infants. End quote. No stained glass. No flags flying. Benches. Plaster dust. Secondly, Jacob then confesses that he didn't even realize when he woke that the place that he was in was where the Lord's presence was. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. I didn't even realize it. You see, Jacob's problem was that he was looking at the place where he was through carnal eyes almost in the same way that the modern churchgoer looks at the house of God simply as a building of bricks and mortar. To Jacob, the place was ordinary. It was ordinary until he realized that it actually became extraordinary as a result of God's presence, just like the sanctuary in Geneva's St. Pierre. Note his response, thirdly. Genesis 28:17, And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place, because God was there. He finally realized this is a normal place, but the difference is here. It's extraordinary. It's not natural, it's supernatural. And how dreadful is this place? So once he knew that he had entered into the presence of God, he was afraid. In other words, he experienced the fear of the Lord. And this is exactly how we ought to enter into the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Yes, celebrating. Yes, joyful. God be blessed forever. But with a sense of awe and wonder and with a sense of anticipation, what is God going to say to me today through the minister? Fully aware that we are entering into the presence of God in the same way that John entered into the presence of the Christ in Revelation 1 should be our thinking when entering into the Lord's house on the Lord's day and in the midst of the seven candlesticks. One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp toward his sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is how we are to reverence the Lord in his house on his day. 
We have to come here prepared to meet the Lord through His Word. Even Jesus Himself, you think about it, God incarnate. Even Jesus exhibited the fear of the Lord. Isaiah, speaking of the Christ, declares this, Isaiah 11, 1 and following, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The Hebrew writer tells us that God heard the prayers of His only begotten Son on the basis of His obedience and on the basis of His fearing the Lord. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, the Hebrew writer explains it this way in Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death and was heard in that He feared, in that He reverenced God, Rashtuni again commenting, saying this, We are told that the fear of the Lord is healthy. It is a restraint against doing evil. It is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge to fear God. It is the fear of God which gives us the confidence to face men and their evil and to be confident of ultimate victory. Such a fear tends to and fosters life. It is in fact a fountain of life. Think about how important that is, the reverence of God. Solomon tells us this, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but who is so putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Reverend Herman Hanko explains this, When we inquire from the scriptures concerning how God would have us worship him, one central feature stands out above all others. We are to worship him with fear. Scripture repeatedly reminds us that the life of faith which the saints lived arose out of the fear of God which ruled in their hearts. John Murray adds this, The fear of God is the soul of godliness. It is the central feature of all Christian ethics from which the whole of the Christian life arises. The fear of God also has a moral content. In other words, it has a sincerity uh, attached to it, a sincere reverence of the Almighty God, who is both holy, good, and just. Consider how the scriptures describe the moral character of the fear of the Lord. Notice, Psalm 19.9. The fear of the Lord is clean, morally clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Proverbs 14.26 and 15.16 In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Now in addition to the fear of God having a moral aspect, so too does the Lord's Day have a moral aspect. Notice, R.L. Dabney comments on the morality of the Lord's Day itself. He says this, Since the day was celebrated as the day God rested from His works, it demonstrates why the Sabbath is a moral commandment which is forever rather than a ceremonial commandment which is for a time. 
For we see not only the purpose, but the morality of the Sabbath and how it was kept in both the Old Testament, in God's giving it as a creation mandate, and then in the New Testament, in Revelation 1.10, where the Apostle John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. For this command proves itself to be moral, not only in that it was kept from Genesis to Revelation, but according to the following distinguishing characteristics of a moral commandment, such as, one, it was given at the creation. Two, it was given before the ceremonial law. Three, it was written by God's hand. Four, it was put into the Ten Commandments. Five, it was made for both Jew and Gentile as well. Six, carried with the death penalty, which no ceremonial law carried. In the Old Testament, if you broke the Sabbath, you were killed. A very serious commandment. Dabney concludes by saying this, these things prove that it was a moral law rather than a ceremonial law. And so what we have is the coupling of the fear of God with the worship of God as a moral obligation within the corporate assembly of saints gathered together on the first day of the week. And therefore not to gather together on the commanded day is to act in an immoral fashion, of course barring any unforeseen situations or, or sickness or anything like that. What we must understand is that while the assembly of the saints is part of the moral law, it is incomplete, even made void, if there is no fear of God in worship. If you just come here, just because you're coming here without the fear of God in worship, you're still not keeping the moral aspect of the law. What is conspicuously missing from much of modern worship today is the fear of God. And that is evident not only by how one behaves during the worship hour, but how one prepares for worship before, during, and after in the meditation on the day's sermon. What might the attitude be if there was a sincere fear of the Lord by those attending the solemn assembly? What, what would it look like? What, what are we looking for? How are we to be directed? Because God's word is a directive. What might the attitude be? How would we act? if we really had a mature reverence of the day. Well, we would see a holy reverence for the day in honoring the assembly, the prayers and the preaching of the word by our attentiveness. So what does that look like? Well, firstly, we would be mindful to personally prepare for the day the night before by meditating on the seriousness of the coming into the Lord's house before God's courtroom, we would be meditating upon how serious it is to come before God in his courtroom, in his throne of judgment, in order to receive grace. Lord, should be our prayers, help me to not be distracted. Help me to receive that message that you have for me, that I might grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we would prepare our family for the day by prayer and explanation. In other words, we should pray that our family is able to receive the word of God in humility. Next, we must explain to our children, especially when we have young children, that tomorrow, the night before the Lord's Day, on Saturday evening, you tell your children, tomorrow is a special day. Tomorrow you will be seated before the throne of the infinite, mighty Creator God, your Redeemer, your Savior, and you must show Him respect and honor. And... When the word is expounded, you will listen. 
orderly behavior, quietness, attentiveness, respect for others in the congregation. All of those things should be explained to our children. This is how we are to maintain order in the church. Thirdly, we should go to bed early. Now, I know that some of you have children that are up through the night. They're sick. They're young. They're babies. I get it. I get it. I've been there. I've done that. I know. But as a rule, we should try, as it is in the best of our strength, to get to bed early. Prepare the children's clothes the night before. Bath time the night before. Don't scurry around in the morning. What is so-and-so going to wear? Is it raining? Is it cloudy? Is it sunny? Is it warm? Is it... Get everything ready. Set it up. I do that myself. I press all my clothes the night before. I hang them up ready to go. And I'm up at 6 o'clock. I'm here by, by 10 minutes after 8. And I don't need to be in the pulpit till 10. I'm preparing. I'm meditating upon the Word of God. Then we should wake early. So as to get our family ready in an orderly manner and calmness. Beginning the Lord's Day in chaos is a disgrace to the honor of the one who has called us to be his children. The Lord's Day should not only be a blessing, it should be looked forward to. Instead of saying, oh no, tomorrow is Sunday and the kids and I got to do the other. That is not how we prepare the Lord's Day. Beginning the Lord's Day in a disorderly and chaotic fashion sets the stage for the entire week. But it also teaches your children that to behave in a disorderly fashion at home is a license to behave in a disorderly fashion in the church. This is not their home. This is God's house. We have to tell them that. We have to remind them of that. So when they're crawling under the pews, playing hide and seek and tag, to remember, this is the sanctity that we are to show God by reverencing His place of worship. This is where God is. The Puritan Thomas Watson, who was probably one of the kindest, gentlest Puritans ever. He wanted so much for his congregation to love God that he practically begged them from the pulpit each and every Lord's Day. Notice what he says. Since there remains a Sabbath in the New Testament, it presupposes that there is a way to keep the Sabbath rightly. For God would not leave a Sabbath without giving directions and how to keep it down to the last detail. For not only are we told that the date is to be kept from morning to morning, but we are also told how to plan our days to honor God. Thus, if we keep a strict Sabbath with heart and life, the day will be the best of all days with a blessing. Whereas, if we break the Sabbath, then will be our worst days with a cursing. Number four, there should also be an appreciation for the word preached and the effort that the minister puts into his study. Paul counsels Timothy and the entire church at Ephesus that those ministers that diligently labor in word and in doctrine are to be held in high esteem and given double honor. When God's word is faithfully expounded, it must be held in the highest of regard. And that means prepare yourself for the Sabbath day, prepare your children for the Sabbath day, and come here ready to be blessed by the Word of God. Dr. Joel Beakey explains it this way. Notice what he says. Calvin stressed listening to the preached Word for two reasons. First, he believed that few people listen well to sermons. 
more than 30 times in his commentaries and nine times in his institutes, Calvin refers to how few people received the preached word with saving faith. If proper hearing was a problem in Calvin's day, how much more is it today when ministers have to compete for the attention of people who are bombarded with various forms of media on a daily basis? Second, Calvin stressed proper hearing because of his high regard for preaching. Calvin viewed preaching as a means of God to use to bestow salvation and benediction. Calvin said that the Holy Spirit is the interim internal minister who uses the external minister of the preached word. Like Calvin, the Puritans had a high regard for preaching. As lovers of the word of God, the Puritans were not content with merely affirming the infallibility, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. They also read, searched, preached, heard, and sang the word with delight, seeking the applying power of the Holy Spirit that accompanying the word. They regarded the 66 books of Holy Scripture as the library of the Holy Spirit. For the Puritans, Scripture was God speaking to His people as a father speaks to his children. Now, fathers, if you were speaking to your sons and your daughters and they were not listening, would you not be offended? Would you not redirect them? Look at me while I'm telling you this or while I'm telling you that. God is speaking from the pulpit by His Word. Biki continues, he says, In preaching, God gives his word as truth and power. As truth, scripture can be trusted for time and eternity. As power, scripture is the instrument of transformation used by the Spirit of God to renew our minds. To renew our minds when you leave the Lord's Day Sabbath. Your mind should be renewed. It should be expanded. You should have some questions. You might have some answers. You might be encouraged. You might be repentant. You might, you will be changed. You might be all of these things, but you will be changed. You should be changed. Your children should be changed. Number five. If the Word of God is truly appreciated, it will be attended upon as the voice of God. The Westminster Logic Catechism explains this in question 160. It is required of those that hear the Word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the Scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God meditate and confer of it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. This is why the Lord Jesus warned in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Take heed therefore how you hear. Not what you hear, but how you hear. As parents, we must be teaching our children how to be good listeners. Okay, so consider some practical directives, some additional practical directives. First, on your way to the house of God, pray that God would clear your mind so that you can be able and will be able to receive the truth of God as he prepared it for you through the preacher. Second, get to church early. Remember, God is going to speak to you on this day. He's speaking to you. He's first speaking to me, but then he's speaking to you. So prepare. Get to church early. Sit for a minute in the sanctuary, before the call to worship, before the bell rings in preparation for worship. Try to minimize all distractions from your mind. Do not allow your children to distract you. I remember Wesley's mother, whenever the children were disobedient, when they were 
running around crazy. She used to take her apron and throw it over her head. Five minutes apiece. That's all I need. And they knew that when that apron came down, it was clobbering time. Try to minimize all distractions from your mind. Do not allow your children. You are the parent. They are not the parent. They do not set the stage. They do not set the agenda for your family, for your household. You do it. Don't allow them to dictate to you. Take control and teach them that the Lord's house is distinct from their house, their own house, and they need to behave accordingly. Teach your children by your example that there should be a time of prayer and preparation, which is simply teach them to be quiet. Don't wait for the Geneva bell, as it was in St. Pierre, to summon you to worship, that the worship is starting, and then you realize, oh, got to go to the bathroom, got to get my kids into the bathroom, I need that last cup of coffee. No, that is not reverencing the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Remember where you are. Let's start the year off properly. Remember who is summoning you to the courtroom and act accordingly. Thirdly, be respectful to others that are already in the sanctuary when entering in because they're trying to prepare for the priest's word. That means when we enter into the Lord's house ready to celebrate His mercy in reverence and holy fear, not as the Apostle says, in rioting, we are to be respectful to others. If your children are fussy, or if they fuss with one another, separate them. Make sure they understand where they are. If they are distracting to you or others, you need to take them out, but not to the toy room and not to the cafeteria to run around in the cafeteria as if that was the toy room. They need to realize that when they are taken from the Lord's service, it's not playtime. They ought to sit and be quiet. That's where they learn. And back and forth, back and forth with discipline. Parents should not seek to escape but rather to discipline they are to subdue their children the scripture says when we chastise our children we just don't spank them you spank them they, then they do it again you spank them they do it again you spank, and you say why is this not working because we're not looking for the peaceful fruit of righteousness which is what chastisement ought to bring as the scripture declares once we see that things will get so much better so we are not to go into the kids room the nursery or the or the cafe to escape but rather that we would go there to subdue our children or nurse them when necessary so that they would be attentive to the preached word because that is what will save them now by following these simple rules god's house can truly become a house of prayer and a place where god's people are edified next we shall consider some additional directives for the proper worship of god when we complete our study on the sanctity of the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.